this room. Let me tell you about it. And she came with the same type game The type of girl giving out the fake cell phone the name Big fame, big she fame. like cats with big things Jewel chip, money clip, phone flip, the six range Has seen her on the ass, spotted her more than once Ass so fat that you can see her from the front She spot me like paparazzi Shot me a glance in that cat woman stance With the fat booty pants, hot damn What's your name, love? Where you came from? Neck and wrist laced up, very little makeup The swims at the Reebok gym, tone your frame up A sugar and spice, the only thing that you made up I tried to play a low-key but couldn't What it do? Welcome to DFS MVP Daily Fantasy Sports Most Valuable Podcast Presented by 4 for 4 Football I am your host, Senior DFS Editor at 4 for 4 Chris Raybon And here with my co-host, as always, Mr. TJ Hernandez of 4 for 4 What is going on, TJ? What's up, Chris? How you doing, man? I'm just excited to be like in, in the flow now like, it, like last week's always different because there's so much buildup and we've been prepping for months. Now it's like we got to turn this over one week at a time. So it's, it's fun. It's favorite time of year. Definitely. It is Wednesday, September 14th. We will be breaking down week two in the NFL here on DFS MVP going position by position. Our DFS theory segment will touch on building a player pool, which is something TJ and myself get a ton of questions on Twitter about, and I do think it is very important. So we will be spending a lot of time talking about each of our approaches, which are a bit different. So it's going to be good for you guys to get a couple of uh, different perspectives on building a player pool, but... Before we get into all of that, we will talk about the music that played us in, which was Miss Fat Booty by Most Def from his 1999 release, Black on Both Sides. TJ, I have no idea what you're going to say about this song. I love this song. <laughs> you picked it. So I'm just going to kick it to you and let you explain why you chose this song. Well, it actually just kind of been on loop on my Spotify all week because we do have the uh, DFS MVP Spotify playlist that we link every late, every week. And uh, I listened to the radio version of the suggested songs from our playlist, and this came up on Spotify. And I thought, we need we need to have this on, on our playlist. So i uh, just been listening to it all week. It's been stuck in my head. Figured, why not put it on the pod? I just thought it was because you liked fat booties. <laughs> well, uh, that's another podcast. <laughs> the uh, Fat Booty MVP podcast coming soon on iTunes. Stay tuned. <laughs> Let's get right into quarterbacks. Week one, I shall start us off going with what I think will be the chalk play mm-hmm. of the week, Mr. Eli Manning of the New York Giants, 8100 on FanDuel. Unfortunately, priced up a lot from week one, where he was probably undervalued at 7200 I believe. Manning is 7600 on DraftKings. Going against the New Orleans Saints, and this is a Saints defense that is simply lacking talent. They have given up 300 or more yards passing in 11 of their last 17 games, dating back to the beginning of 2015. They just lost a key, key contributor to their defense in Delvin Bro. 
And I'll talk more about that when we get into wide receivers. But as far as Manning goes, we know from TJ's research on big games and my research on uh, quarterbacks hitting cash and tournament value on FanDuel and DraftKings that we're looking for high team totals. Quarterback production is correlated with team totals. We're looking for home favorites. The Giants are a home favorite. Their team total... As of this recording, on Wednesday night, is approaching 29 points. That is second highest on the slate to only Carolina as of this writing. And of course, the Giants-Saints game has a much higher over-under. And according to research I've done on player correlations, opposing quarterbacks are very correlated. Opposing passing games are correlated as well. So the high over-under, also a good sign for Eli Manning here in this game and since head coach Ben McAdoo took over as the OC in 2014 Manning has accounted for 79% of all Giants offensive touchdowns so that's essentially four out of every five scores accounted for by Mr. Manning and with the team total over 29 he's a really good bet for both 300 yards passing as I said and also to put up at least three touchdowns. TJ, who are you looking at at QB? Yeah, well, before I move on to my quarterback, I just want to say something about Eli Manning. It's funny because we're we're both pretty busy during the week, so we put together these show notes, and we do it separately, and we send each other the players we're going to be talking about. And uh, You did yours first this week, and I went through, opened it up, and pretty much every guy that I was planning on talk about, talking about, you already had. So I, I do got some notes on your guys this week. But I, I Eli Manning probably will be chalk, but uh, I think it might not be as high as we suspect just because he was only average last week. 18 fantasy points, which is okay, not great, but if we look at his efficiency, uh, only three quarterbacks had a better fantasy points per attempt than him last week. Jameis Winston, Drew Brees, Andrew Luck. Those guys all had really good fantasy games. So, yeah, I love Manning this week. But uh, my guy this week is Derek Carr at 8,300 on FanDuel, 7,200 on DraftKings. The Raiders get to play at home this week versus Atlanta. Um, They have a team total of 27 points, which is relatively high. But, again, it's kind of in that second tier of implied point totals. And we talked about on the podcast last week. Early in the season, I really like to target that second tier of games in terms of the highest over-unders and the teams in the second tier of implied point totals because Vegas, there is evidence that Vegas takes a couple weeks to get very accurate on the tail ends, the highest and lowest scoring teams. So I love uh, teams in that tier. Raiders are favored by four and a half at home. We always like quarterbacks in those uh, efficient situations this figures to be one of the fastest paced games of the week if we consider how last week's games went Uh, we're gonna have a lot of small sample size discussions on this podcast because it's only week two Uh, but in the nfl we also have to adjust really quickly we only have 17 weeks to adjust so a little bit of a balancing act but atlanta had the fifth fastest pace last week Oakland the 11th fastest, so that really favors the passing games. And then I mentioned those fantasy points allowed. Atlanta allowed .8 fantasy points per attempt to Jameis last week. Uh, Obviously, Jameis had four touchdowns, a couple of them long passes, so a little bit of variance there. Uh, But it's also interesting because, as you noted, Chris, in your uh, three key defensive tendencies, Atlanta's a team that's usually going to try to uh, filter passes underneath 
But uh, Oakland can combat that because we saw them rotate four really good pass-catching backs last week. Uh, So they're going to be able to exploit that matchup. I just really like everything about this matchup for the Raiders. Um, I think it's going to be a really high-scoring game. And Derek Carr's pretty uh, affordable considering the prices of the other quarterbacks on the sites. Key stat, you mentioned Phillip Rivers. Since 2013... Rivers averaging 289 yards per game with Keenan Allen, 262 yards per game without Keenan Allen. He Rivers is averaging 1.97 passing touchdowns per game with Keenan Allen and 1.73 without him. And with Keenan Allen, Rivers throws only 0.81 interceptions per game. Without him, that figure rises to 1.09. So big drop off in efficiency, huh? Definitely, and we are looking for efficiency rather than volume out of our quarterbacks, which is unlike the other positions. What what do you got for your key stat, TJ? My key stat is last week Detroit allowed the third highest fantasy points per attempt to quarterbacks. They're playing Tennessee this week, who threw on 83% of their red zone plays. Good stuff. Running backs. C.J. Anderson, 7,800. FanDuel, 6,800. DraftKings going up against the Colts at home. And as we saw on the season opener, the Broncos have a good defense. They have a young quarterback. Now they have a banged-up number one wide receiver with Demarius Thomas ailing with a hip injury. So it's become pretty clear that C.J. Anderson has become the focal point of the offense. He racked up 24 total touches in week one, including four receptions. The Broncos are currently six-point home favorites against Indianapolis. And the Colts really struggled to contain Lions running backs last week. Now, some of the volume stats were a bit inflated just because of the crazy game script involved in a 39-35 outcome but the raw numbers for the Colts against running backs they gave up 229 total yards four touchdowns to running backs in week one and the efficiency numbers aren't much better 5.2 yards per carry and 10 receptions at 12 yards a pop so we saw CJ Anderson have success against a good defense in Carolina Uh, both on the ground and through the air. And this is a game as a home favorite setting up for him to have potentially an even bigger game if he can punch it in to the end zone once again. TJ? Uh, I think I underestimated how bad the Colts defense is going to be this year. I think that that they can be... uh, pretty close to what we saw with the Saints last year where they were just you you just didn't even look at the names it was just a plug and play at as many positions as possible against this defense uh so maybe get on that early there might be a lot of hidden value not just CJA but a lot of low owned guys just because I think people are going to ignore the Broncos offense because of what we thought coming into the year so uh, I really really like that call uh my guy isn't probably isn't going to be as popular but uh just a tremendous value, I think, in this backfield this week, and that's New England Patriots running back LeGarrette Blunt, 
$6,000 on FanDuel, only $4,000 on DraftKings. And this is really interesting because we actually saw this both FanDuel and DraftKings adjust really quickly to the cheap running backs. We saw D'Angelo was already priced fairly high, but he got a pretty uh, decent bump in price this week. Uh, we saw Spencer Ware, who was the obvious guy, get a pretty big price hike this week. Uh, LeGarrette Blunt, beside, uh, even though he saw 22 rushes last week, didn't see much of a price hike. Still really, really cheap. New England's favored by 6.5 at home with an over-under of 24. And we know we want those scoring opportunities with our running backs uh, when they're going to get a, when their team's going to have a lot of trips, not only to the red zone, but inside the 10-yard line. And we saw Blunt score on his only rush inside the 10. Uh, he accounted for 40% of New England's touches last week in a game where we thought it was going to be a James White game, and New England still leaned on Blunt. Uh, White only had six touches, uh, five of them receptions. You have a little bit to say about White, but I still really just like this backfield in general in this spot. Uh, just a ton of value. Last year, last week, Blunt was on par with guys like Adrian Peterson and David Johnson in terms of team touch share. So, uh, I really like the value, and I think just because of the name value, the um, or the the lack of name value, how much people are always scared off of the New England backfield, um, I think you're going to get a really good shot at not only value but probably relatively low ownership here too. Definitely, and what I wanted to add about White and just the New England backfield in general was dating back to the beginning of 2015, they have had a double-digit PPR back in 16 out of their last 17, whether it's been Blunt, Lewis, or White. Um, So it's a situation where, depending on how you allocate your GPP resources between sites or even on the same site, you, you can essentially make alliance with them both. And one of them will probably hit, or you can play Blunt on FanDuel where it's more suitable to him because he doesn't catch passes as much, but he scores touchdowns. And on DraftKings, you can go with White. But New England backfield is a valuable situation, and I do love the Blunt call because I think Blunt is one of the more talented pure running backs in the league. I think he just kind of goes under the radar because he's just another skill position player on New England and they run through skill position players um you know it's just next man up with them and they have so many stars like Brady and Gronk and Edelman etc so Blunt goes under the radar but I mean Blunt is a really good running back he's probably priced below his talent level and as you mentioned TJ Blunt over 20 touches in week one yeah, one one other thing I want to say about Blunt, and I think people might shy away from him a little bit, bit because Miami was really effective against the Seattle running game last week. Uh, I think that was a little bit of a function of Seattle just running a really inefficient offense early in the game. We saw this happen with them last year, just get off to a really slow start. Um, and then once Russell Wilson was hobbled, it really limited what Seattle usually does on offense. But Miami, as you noted in your three tendencies column this year, they run that wide nine scheme that asks their defensive ends to line up outside of the tackles. And that really favors those inside rushers. So just another nod to Blunt in this game. Right. And I think what really happened with Seattle was their offensive line just couldn't perform. It's been bad Mm -hmm. for a while now, Mm -hmm. and it just really didn't show up in week one. And that led to a lot of struggles. And, of course, the Wilson injury compounded that. My key stat for running backs, simple. 
Lamar Miller, and D'Angelo Williams each led the NFL in week one with 32 touches. Speaking of touches, my key stat is that in week one, Ryan Matthews rushed the ball six times inside the 10-yard line, four fewer than you saw all of last season inside the 10. I actually have a comment on that specific Ryan Matthews stat, and it has to do with the Cleveland Browns because I think everyone remembers the Browns from last season and them struggling against the run. And the and I think a lot of people might – I've gotten questions on Twitter anyway. I don't know if that's indicative of the larger sample of DFS players or not, but a lot of people asking me, who do I – Forsett or West, who do I go with this week? And – Personally, my answer is neither, and not just because I have no idea how they're going to use their committee going forward. It was 50-50 essentially in week one, but also because the reason Ryan Matthews rushed six times inside the 10-yard line was because the Cleveland defense actually stonewalled them a few times at the goal line. There was one sequence near the end of the game where I think it was like three or four straight plays inside the five or inside the six where Matthews didn't get in, and then there was a penalty, and then he finally got in uh, on, on the last try. But I think the Cleveland run defense, held they held Ryan Matthews to 22 for 77, I believe it was, think they're going to be a little bit improved. They might not be as big of a target as they were last year. I think the Chargers are the team that still looks like they're struggling uh, against the run. I th- also think the Chiefs in that same game last week really struggled against the run without some of their key guys from last year. So just something to keep in mind mm-hmm. going forward about which run defenses to target. Uh, let's, before we talk about our wide receiver plays, I just wanted to get your opinion on it. We haven't even talked about it off air, but every it's fresh on everyone's mind. What do you make of this whole Josh Norman not shadowing Antonio Brown situation? And what do you think that means going forward in terms of even this week when Norman and Des Bryant could line up, but they might not? Yeah, I mean, this is something that we talked about in the offseason. Like, the... We know this going into the season from last year. Josh Norman, he shadowed a little bit towards the end of the season, but he generally wasn't a shadow guy. Um, I heard some talk on Monday about this defense still kind of trying to gel and that it's not as simple as we think as just putting a cornerback on the other side. It really uh, messes with their 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 blitz packages, their their audibles. Um, like flipping flipping players isn't that easy, especially like throwing them in the slot or something like that. So I think it, it's a little deeper than maybe the casual fan might understand where you think, well, just go man up on them and, and nothing else has to change. Like it affects all 11 players when a player moves, especially when their defense is set up in a way where they have a left cornerback and a right cornerback. Um, but it's it's not a surprise. I mean, we've seen this before. Definitely. And I'll just add that, this is why I spent hours and hours and hours of research writing up essentially 96 facts for for offensive uh, coaching tendencies and 96 for defensive. And that's the same reason you spent hours of research, TJ, uh, breaking down all these new coordinators is because coaching really does play a huge part in football. And a, and a lot of times coaches don't necessarily always do the smartest thing and they don't always do the obvious thing and 
in this situation, I actually think it's not necessarily surprising in the scheme of things. But the thing with Carolina was even though Josh Norman wasn't a shadow, that was mostly because they played a lot of cover three where Josh mm-hmm. Norman would essentially be responsible for the receiver running deep down the sideline anyway. But they did move him around from side to side a lot within that cover three. Whereas I think the problem with Washington, like if Washington wanted to play a similar defense, but just, you know, match him up with Brown, because we saw early in the game the two times when Norman and Brown matched up. I mean, Norman made some great plays on Brown, mm-hmm. and that was the whole reason why uh, Pittsburgh flipped Brown in the first place. And I think it was kind of a bit foolish, honestly, for Joe Barry, the D.C. of the Redskins, not to make some in-game adjustments. I understand if you trust Bashad Breeland, who is pretty good corner in his own right. But once that first touchdown happened, I think, and it was obvious that Pittsburgh was going to go back to that, I think that's where you start making adjustments. I think you, at that point, you just call it audible, let, let Josh Norman do it, do what you paid him to do. But it, the, the point is that for fantasy purposes is we do spend a lot of time you know, trying to break down these cornerback wide receiver matchups, but we also have to remember that it's not necessarily what the the it's the obvious thing is not necessarily what the coach will do. Coaches really do believe in their scheme sometimes to a fault, and things like this will happen the same the same way we saw Darrell Revis get left in single coverage on AJ Green because the Jets obviously believe Revis is a, a shutdown corner, and even though he obviously couldn't handle Green. The coaches believed that he could, and so they left him essentially on an island all game. I I think the safety actually blew a coverage over the top on Green's touchdown, but in general, mm-hmm. Revis was pretty much left on an island. So that's, it's just something to consider with these wide receiver cornerback matchups. There's a lot more nuance than just, oh, this guy's a good corner, so he'll automatically shatter, or this guy's a good corner, so he will shut this guy down. I think another example was Brandon Cooks versus Sean Smith last week. And Cooks was surprisingly lower owned than I thought he was going to be. He was a recommended play of mine. Uh, and one of the reasons was, even though Sean Smith was one of the top PFF graded corners last year and is a good corner, he's 6'3", 214, runs a four five forty. Cooks is 5'11", 190, soaking wet, runs a four point three three forty, And of course, he ran by Smith for a 98-yard touchdown and got benched. I mean, yes, mm-hmm. and then Smith got benched. So these these cornerback wide receiver matchups, they're very nuanced and they 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 depend on scheme a lot and they depend on size and there's a lot more that goes into it than just this will be a, a good corner on a good receiver and that's what we're going to see. Um so so that being said, TJ, what do you think is going to happen this week cuz it's supposed to be another marquee matchup Norman versus Dez is do you think they will make an adjustment after kind of getting embarrassed on prime time? Or will they allow Breland to cover Dez, who did make a name for himself by shutting down Dez on a Monday night game, uh, I believe it was a year or two ago? Yeah, I I don't really have much insight into what I think Washington's going to do because obviously, like you talked about, they didn't do what we thought was the most obvious play. Um, I don't think it's actually going to matter much and i'm going to get into this more in a little bit from a fantasy aspect but it looked like that uh dak prescott had two very obvious favorite targets and they weren't des bryant so i think that could come into play and um it could be r.i.p des uh, yeah, when you when we get into that, I uh, I have some things to say about that too because as you know, I'm very aware of the Giants' struggles 
at the linebacker and safety position, which it looked like they still have. But we will get mm-hmm. into that uh, in a moment. Let's go through the wide receivers we actually do want to play. Odell Beckham, another guy who I think should be chalked, but after the huge games from A.J. Green and Antonio Brown, maybe he won't be as chalky as I think he will be. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but... The first key here is that the Saints lost Delvin Bro, who is a guy that actually does shadow. A very talented corner. Does get beat a lot for production, so it wouldn't it doesn't really change things too much. But what it does do for the Saints is now their cornerback corpse consists of three rookies, third rounder PJ Williams and two undrafted rookie free agents, Ken Crowley and Devontae Harris. And then besides that, they have two 26-year-old journeymen who have been on four teams apiece now in Sterling Moore and B.W. Webb, who they both signed within the last two weeks. Webb was actually signed uh, a day or two ago. So when you have a veteran quarterback like Eli Manning, the top two wide receiver arguably in the game in Odell Beckham, and it's it's going to be a real problem for the Saints to cover him no matter what type of scheme they draw up. So I think Beckham is in a blow-up spot. Roto World's Rich Rebar wrote in his worksheet column this week that Beckham hasn't gone back-to-back games without scoring a touchdown since 2014, and Beckham did not score a touchdown in Week 1 against Dallas. And a final note on Beckham for you people that love some numbers— Beckham averages 7.2 catches, 103 yards, and 1.19 touchdowns in 16 career games against bottom half pass defenses. So everything's lining up for Beckham to have a huge game. He's one of those chalk plays that I'm okay with having a large amount of exposure to in tournaments and building around some contrarian plays around him rather than trying to fade them all together and do it that way because I think he really is in a great spot. My other wide out this week is a guy that I'm going to take advantage of. I don't particularly feel super comfortable about his talent level or anything like that, but I'm just going to take advantage of the fact that he played on Monday night and his price hasn't adjusted. Jeremy Curley, he's 47 on FanDuel and 3K on DraftKings. As we know from research uh, like that shown in my uh, DFS playbook, wide receiver strategy, targets are the most strongly correlated with fantasy production at wide receiver, and only eight players in the entire league received more week one targets than Curly with 11. Now that was a bit inflated because the Rams could not sustain drives and the Niners ended up running 81 snaps, but the Niners will be a fast-paced offense who may have to actually score uh, to keep up with Carolina. So I I foresee another game with uh, snap count getting into the 70s, and I think Curly could have another double-digit target game. And for those scared off by the point spread in favor of Carolina, in the DFS Playbook 2016 wide receiver edition that I wrote, you can find that on 444.com right now. It's a free article. I'll put it in the show notes as well. Wide receivers actually returned the best dollar per point value as road underdogs on both sites So in 2015. So Jeremy Curley, the number, he's a, he's a guy that I'm playing more for the numbers than for any specific reason other than I think he's going to lead the team in targets in a game where they're going to have to to throw. So 
Those are my two guys, Odell and Curly, high-low. That's kind of how I'm going at wide receiver this week. want to get some studs in there and going to balance that out with some more inexpensive options. Yeah, I mean, I I, li- I always like the barbell approach just because um, just for lots of general investment reasons that have been mm-hmm. popularized by Jonathan Bales, where he's he's got those ideas from the anti fragility playbook. But it just makes sense in general, especially on DraftKings, because you can get those players that are very very high floor. Um, and obviously have some of the highest ceilings in the league. And then when you go with those cheap players, you're not losing much if they don't hit value compared to um, a bunch of middling players where they can all kind of bust out, but none of them are really going to make up for each other. None of them are really going to be hitting like that 5-6x value. Uh, so I, I love that approach. Um, but my my guy that I'm looking at at the, the higher um, – the higher price point is Allen Robinson at $8,200 on FanDuel, $7,800 on DraftKings. And again, as I, I tend to gravitate towards when I do my first gloss over of stats, I'm always kind of in this contrarian mindset. So I look for these guys that I think might see a little bit lower ownership. So, uh, I mean, he saw 15 targets in week one, which was the most in the league. He accounted for 38% of the Jaguars targets. Uh, the Jags only threw it four times in the red zone, but one went to A-Rob, so 25% of the red zone targets. And they only threw it 50% of the time in the red zone last week. Uh, last year, they were an 80% uh, red zone passing team, so I think we'll see a little bit more of that. Uh, again, this game is in that second tier of over-unders at 47 points with a spread of just three. I already touched on why I like to target those teams and games in the second tier of scoring. Uh, I'm not too worried about the the shadowing of Jason Verrett because if they have to, they will move Allen Robinson in the slot. Even if a corner does shadow, they usually won't shadow in the slot. A-Rob played over a third of his snaps in the slot last week, and I just love... The, the volume guy coming off a mo- mediocre week, like, A-Rob was okay. He Six for 85 or something, I think, was his stat line last week. Um, but he's just going to be crazy heavily target, targeted. And a point that I didn't even think about that you touched on is when the opposing quarterback has a chance to be really inefficient, that usually favors the opposing offense because they're going to get put in more favorable scoring situations. So you, your point about... Uh, the Chargers passing game possibly being really inefficient without uh, Keenan Allen only boosts the the prospects of the Jaguars. But, uh, Chris, you want to say something else about Allen Robinson? Yeah, I think A-Rob is one of those examples. Of, I love the play this week, and I think he's one of those examples of process over results because mm-hmm. A-Rob was actually a guy that I was on last week and – you know, for for the exact reasons, you know, he 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 gets a lot of targets. He gets a lot of red zone targets, and what ended up happening was he led the the league in targets. He he just missed out on about I think it was three different near touchdowns on end zone targets where it was just out mm-hmm. of his reach. So it's a situation where for anyone else who rostered him last week or something like that or just looked at his stat line and was like, ah, it's average. I don't, I don't think I'm going to play him. You know, Allen Robinson is still doing exactly what he we thought he would, and he's getting the type of workload that we need him to to be a top five fantasy option, leading the league in targets, getting a ton of red zone work. 
So Robinson can have a blow-up game at any time. I do agree. I, I think Jason Barrett is a really good corner. I was actually off Jeremy Macklin last week for that purpose. Um, Macklin actually did score a touchdown on Verrett, but Verrett actually, it's hard to see in the stats, but um, he still held him to 63 yards and actually got an interception, just took mm-hmm. the ball away from Macklin at one point. So Verrett is a good corner, but Robinson is just so big, so strong, that, and Borders is willing to throw it up to him that, I don't think you can be too worried. And like TJ said, Robinson will move around. And that just goes back to another point we should make about these wide receiver cornerback matchups. A lot of wide receivers these days move around. So mm-hmm. even when you're looking at a wide receiver cornerback matchup, I mean, there are there. For example, I think a lot of people thought that maybe uh, the Saints slot receiver would be Michael Thomas in that Colston mm-hmm. role. And what actually ended up happening in week one was that Thomas spent most of his time outside, whereas Brandon Cooks was in the slot a lot and Willie Sneed was in the slot a lot. But mm-hmm. the bottom line is they're all moving around. Most teams will do that with their wide receivers. Um, the Cowboys are actually one team that hasn't done it as much with Dez, which is why Dez just has these certain uh, situations where he can underwhelm at times or have these really low floor games because they don't tend to move him around to the slot as much or uh, even side to side sometimes. So just a lot of nuances and things you kind of pick up as you go along with these cornerback wide receiver matchups. But as you, you know, consume content and you kind of get a lot of times it can just get confusing. Like, is this guy going to match up with this guy or is he not? Or is it going to make a difference or is it not? Just keep in mind that in many times, unless it's like, a, a, a guy like Patrick Peterson who really does shadow the best guy or somebody like that. It's it's really hard um, to, to, pin, to, to pinpoint these these matchups and to, to definitively say that one guy will be on another guy for the entirety of the game. Yeah, I mean, all those all those points are really good, and I think that when we see the the ownership come out and we have our ownership projections come out every friday on four for four uh, i wouldn't be surprised if we see a rob around that four percent ownership like he was in week one so a guy i really love another guy that i'm targeting uh, going back to the well uh, just like i am with a rob i was high on him last week like you were um, i had a lot of marvin jones last week and i'm probably going to be targeting him again this week he's sixty five hundred dollars on fanduel fifty five hundred dollars on DraftKings. again uh the final stat line, pretty mediocre, 4 for 85, but that's a good thing because it kept his salary pretty suppressed after he saw double-digit di- targets. Uh, anytime we can find that double-digit target receiver at a affordable price, that's a great get. Uh, he saw 27% of Detroit's targets, and we know Detroit's going to throw a lot. They threw 60 62% of their plays in Week 1. Uh, both of these teams were in the top 10 in offensive pace in week one and i think that's something that'll only benefit the lions uh, passing game even more and another thing that the lions passing game should benefit from is the titans scheme just in general they run a three four scheme with one uh, high safety that is it's built to kind of neutralize a running back so we um we can see detroit uh throw as much as we'd expect especially deep and uh, we know uh, given the chance marvin jones can get deep November 9th, 2014, the last time that Golden Tate had a 100-yard receiving game. Marvin Jones getting the deep targets in this offense should be going up against probably Jason McCourty of the Titans, who's been struggling, and all three of the Titans' corners have really not been playing up to par. Parrish Cox as well, so I like the matchup for Marvin 
Jones there. My key stat for wide receivers. This is something that I've been writing about since <laughs> uh, I came in the industry. Yeah. Um, I think I did a whole article about it in like 2013, and it's still going. A.J. Green has averaged 99 yards and .68 touchdowns on the road. At home, just 65 yards and .51 touchdowns. He is at Pittsburgh this week. So in a spot for a repeat blow-up game, Pittsburgh did not hold him under 118 yards and allowed a touchdown to him in both games last season, which is always something that catches my attention because usually in these divisional games where the opponent is familiar with each other, stats will regress to the mean from the first to the second game. So if, for example, if Pittsburgh corralled AJ in the first game, he uh, Cincinnati would probably find a way to scheme him more looks and have a blow up in the second game. Or if he went off in the first game, uh, Pittsburgh would probably find a way to limit that and make other people beat them in the second game. But with Cincinnati and Green, it just seems like on the road and against Pittsburgh, period, Green having a lot of success. Uh, Ben Roethlisberger and Antonio Brown also have great home splits. So this kind of sets up as a situation where, I mean, Cincinnati really has no one to throw it to besides AJ. I know Brandon LaFell had a pretty good game on the Jets' uh, second cornerback. I believe it's Marcus Williams. But in general, I think Cincinnati will be going green early and often. So that is my key stat. My key stat is that in week one, Cole Beasley ran 82% of of his routes from the slot. He was targeted on over 35% of those routes. For perspective, only A.J. Green and Allen Robinson were targeted on over 35% of the total routes in week one. And I think part of that is to do with the fact that, as I've mentioned many times, the Giants, especially after this offseason where they really – added to their cornerback depth with Janoris Jenkins. While he is a feast or famine corner, he still uh, is a pretty solid corner when he's on his game. Also, Eli Apple, first-round draft pick. He's been playing well so far. Dominic Rogers, cromartie another above-average cornerback that can also play in the slot. And uh, Leon Hall, if he ever gets back, um, can also play some slots. So the Giants have some good cornerbacks, but especially on the outside with Jenkins and, and Cromartie or Apple on the outside. And, and they have really weak linebackers uh, in terms of coverage. And their safeties are also Landon Collins and Darian Thompson. Collins, a second-year man, uh, not a very good uh, cover guy, better in the box. And Thompson, uh, supposedly a better cover guy, but, of course, this is that was his first game of the season uh, in his career against Dallas. So I think that was planned for Prescott to attack the Giants over the middle. I think it Mm -hmm. will even out a bit as the season goes on. But as I said, uh, Cowboys not as creative with Dez as most other teams with their stud receivers, so that doesn't necessarily help Dez Bryant's floor. But you guys are listening to DFS MVP presented by 4 for 4 Football, and this week's DFS MVP podcast is presented by Roster Coach. TJ, why don't you tell us about Roster Coach? I know this is your project and you've been working really hard on it. 
Sure. Rostercoach.com is a site that I founded with the idea being that I want to give people the opportunity to see what my weekly process is or what uh, any of their favorite DFS experts' weekly process is. There's so much information in the DFS industry that uh, tells us what to do. You can read about it, but it's really hard to get a chance to really see it, and that was the idea behind this. It is classroom-style, video-based DFS education. We we build out fantastic courses where you can see anything from uh, how we track our bankroll to how we build our lineups on a weekly basis, a bunch of research on each individual position, even things like how we build our spreadsheets from week to week. One thing we talk about a lot is tracking our data in a spreadsheet. How do we compile that? How do you even start building a spreadsheet if you've never been on one before? We show you how to do all that. Uh, in addition to that, we have weekly content that shows you how we go through our lineup building process. Uh, we show you uh, the stats that we're looking at, where we're finding those stats, how we're tracking them, which ones are most important. And then also we're doing weekly reviews where we're showing you our hits, our misses, uh, what our weekly bankroll process is. And you just get to see everything that we're doing every week. It, it's as if you're looking over my shoulder as I go through my DFS process each week. So it's a very exciting project, one that is people are really excited about just because it's a new way to absorb content. Uh, not everybody has time or, or wants to read the 3,000 word articles that some of us are putting out sometimes. So this just gives people a different way to absorb that content. We also offer one-on-one -on -one DFS coaching. Again, not a lot of people have time to put in 20 plus hours of research every week. Uh, we've made all of our coaches available so you can Get in contact with them. You can set up one-on-one -on -one private sessions tailored to anything you want to learn about DFS, whether you want to improve on your bankroll management, uh, if you want to just go over some lineup building t techniques for small stakes, high stakes, GPPs, cash games. We even have a DFS mental game coach, and our coaches include Anthony Amico, Joe Holka, Renee Miller, and our very own Chris Raybon. So check out rostercoach.com. It's a really fun project, one I'm really excited about, and luckily one that's bringing you the 44 DFS MVP podcast this week. Yeah, and I checked out the site. I mean, it's a really phenomenal site. The They have FanDuel and DraftKings GPP value reports, which are free every week. Some really great videos. But just the, the detail of the videos and the nitty-gritty that it really breaks down, uh, all these different questions that I know I've seen on Twitter over and over and things that, that people maybe struggle to even write about sometimes are just right there in front of you, broken down exactly how we do it. So really great site, rostercoach dot com and one thing tj left out with the coaches is that tj is going to be a coach as well so that's a really important fact that um <laughs> he left out probably the most important of all but guys check it out rostercoach.com you are listening to dfs mvp presented by four for four football we are discussing week two in the nfl 2016 tight ends Antonio Gates is my guy against Jacksonville and this is kind of uh, just a chalk play uh, 5,900 on FanDuel 4,500 on DraftKings and this is because Keenan Allen is out for the most part uh, Gates was shut down last week by the Chiefs that was to be expected if you did check out that three tendencies on each team's defensive scheme article which I will put in the show notes you would know that the Eric Berry is a fine 
safety in terms of covering tight ends. The Chiefs have ranked in the top five in terms of least fantasy points allowed to tight ends in three of the last four years, coinciding with the years where Eric Berry played a full season or nearly a full season. So that might even keep ownership a little lower than usual because Gates had a bad game. But Gates averages um, uh, 0.69 touchdowns per game uh, at home over the last two seasons so Antonio Gates just the chalk play there are there are some cheaper guys that you can pivot to uh, as well and be sure to look out for those in the four for four GPP breakdowns by myself and TJ but you have to subscribe for that TJ I know you got another guy kind of in that same uh, Gates price range that you're looking at yeah, the guy that stood out to me this week was Jason Witten, 5,900 on FanDuel, 4,300 on DraftKings. Uh, this is just a straight volume play. Well, we already touched on what happened in the Dallas passing game last week, really concentrated in the middle. Uh, we saw 14 targets to Witten in week one. I run a metric every week that's dollar per target. Uh, obviously, he did have inflated targets, but he grades out as the top tight end in that dollar per target metric. Witten saw two red zone targets this uh, last week. Uh, they're facing the Redskins, who were targeted heavily inside the 10-yard line by the Steelers uh, last week. And I think something that could happen, again, focusing in on these guys that might be lower owned, I think a lot of people just see that the Cowboys passing game was pretty me- mediocre last week. So many people own Dak Prescott, and I think that will lead to them just lumping in all the pass catchers as mediocre, not really taking time to break down the individual positions. Uh, you mentioned how New York was really vulnerable, vulnerable over the middle, um, but it was a really, really clear split last week, targeting the middle of the field uh, and just kind of those easier throws for Dak. So even against a team that isn't the Giants, I think we could see a little bit more of that continue. Uh, really like Jason Witten at his price point, just a heavy volume guy that I think Dak will continue to target. Right, and... Again, that's a great point. Dak is a young quarterback. He's in his second start. So it makes a lot of sense for him to target a guy like Jason Witten with safe throws under the middle, just take what the defense gives you because Jason Witten is the consummate pro. He's not very athletic, but he knows exactly how to get open, exactly how to sit down in the zone coverages that teams are playing these days. And so I think think that's a good call. My key stat for tight ends is that only five tight ends in the NFL received more targets in week one than Pittsburgh's Jesse James. James played 100% of the Steelers' snaps, one of only three tight ends to play 100% of snaps. And Heath Miller caught 10 passes in both games against the Bengals in 2015. My key stat is that over the last three seasons, tight ends that finished with an average top four score in fantasy scoring scored two plus touchdowns over 60% of the time on FanDuel. But on DraftKings, players that hit that threshold scored two plus, two plus touchdowns just 45% of the time. Right, and that's a great uh, thing to bring up because something people might not be aware of, but what it takes to achieve 
value on FanDuel and DraftKings is a bit different because of the three-point bonuses, because of the, the one-point PPR versus half-point PPR. Uh, touchdowns are a lot more emphasized on FanDuel. And when I create FanDuel lineups, a lot of times I am really trying to get a good five guys in there that I think are really great bets for touchdown. And then I'm looking for value to kind of round out my roster straight up dollar per point value but a lot of times on FanDuel it's really about those touchdowns and that's why I pay a lot of attention to uh, touchdown splits as a favorite as an underdog at home on the road versus certain types of defenses or whatnot because touchdowns are already a very volatile stat so any type of uh, insight into when they are most likely to occur is very valuable especially on a site like FanDuel defense special teams patriots for me 4500 on fanduel 3000 on draftkings they're currently a 6.5 point favorite at home against the dolphins the dolphins implied total is 17.5 defensive special team scoring is negatively correlated with opposing team totals which means as an opposing team total decreases Defense special team scoring increases, so it's a good sign. Uh, Miami only mustered 10 points against the Seahawks in Seattle last week, and this is their second straight game traveling on the road uh, against uh, what is probably going to be an elite NFL team. Uh, Kickers, TJ? Uh, My kicker of the week is Chandler Catanzaro at $4,900 on FanDuel. Arizona's favored by 6.5 points at home with uh, implied point total over 28. I really like paying up for kickers, uh, really in any format, just because it's something that I think a lot of casual players still aren't doing. They're just looking for their $4,500 kicker, throwing them in. But uh, there is strategy to be had at the kicker position, and a uh, reason I really like Fandle because I think the kicker does give an added edge. So Chandler Catanzaro in Week 2. It's time for our DFS Theory segment, and this week we will be discussing player pool selection something as i mentioned we get a lot of questions about so i'll just start things off by talking about my process in terms of selecting a player pool for each position and essentially what that means is just narrowing it down to the handful of guys that i'm going to consider playing in a given week so what i like to do first is I like to go game by game and make some notes about all the players and situations that stand out. I usually take note of the Vegas spread, so I jot down the projected score. If there's any interesting betting trends, I'll note those as well. Like if a bunch of the public is uh, hammering the over or the under in a specific game, that's something that I want to know. So once I kind of have these game by game notes, I will, uh, and I'll be pulling out things that stand out. So for example, with the Cardinals... Uh, Bucks game this week, you know, an example of my notes would be, okay, Patrick Peterson will likely be on Mike Evans for most of this game. So Evans probably not a guy that I want to be too heavily invested in this week, if at all. And things like that, uh, of course, when when it's a, a note about the Giants, for example, Giants Saints, I'll, may, I'll say, okay, well, the Giants struggle against... Uh, over the middle of the field, so this could be a spot for Kobe Fleener. It could be a spot, again, for a guy like Travaris Cadet or something like that. And I'll make all these notes about that. And once I do that and I kind of have a list of players in each game that stand out and players that uh, are in bad matchups, once I have that bird's eye view, then what I want to do is begin to narrow down a little more and, and come up with my best plays. So then what I do is I use... Uh, 
something that me and TJ just created this year for 444 DFS subscribers, which is our uh, cash game and GPP guidelines. We have one. We have a FanDuel cash guidelines, FanDuel GPP guidelines, DraftKings cash guidelines, and a DraftKings GPP guidelines. And what those are is every position is just a bunch of short form bullets on different things that uh, lead to. A high amount of fantasy production for each position. So, for example, for quarterbacks, it would say something like home favorites get a bump. Sixty-six uh, percent of quarterbacks who have big games are favorites. That's not the real number, but um, what it would just have things like that. So, I'll essentially be now looking for these indicators of big games because even though I have a player pool of all the guys that are in good spots, what I really want is the guys who are going to finish his top options, which is what TJ did in the big game profiles. And I also looked at um, those guidelines are also comprised of research that I did in the FanDuel and DraftKings year in reviews, which essentially looks at the same type of indicators, but for players who hit uh, cash game value and for tournament value. So depending on uh, what I'm looking for, I'm basically narrowing my players down, noting any players like, for example, Derek Carr, home favorite, uh, so that's a positive uh, over a 25 point implied total. That's a positive things like that. So now I'm really narrowing my guys down by the numbers as opposed to my first step, which was kind of narrowing guys down uh, more on a qualitative uh, basis, just looking at matchups and stuff like that. So now I'm looking at the actual numbers and trying to find the, the predictive indicators of who will have the biggest games in a given week. Once I've done that, I will go into the 4 for 4 value reports to see if there's any just great dollar per point values I missed. So that's something I think a lot of people might uh, do a little differently than me. Some people might, and I think you actually do this too, but um, I don't look at the the dollar per point values until after I've done my initial Mm -hmm. research. I think Mm -hmm. some people try to do it the opposite way, and I don't necessarily like to do that because I don't want to have, I don't want to be that price sensitive Mm -hmm. um, to where I'm playing guys only because they're a great dollar per point value because Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day in DFS, we all know it's a numbers game, and we all know, obviously, how to use these numbers uh, to our benefit, and if you are listening to this podcast, you obviously probably enjoy numbers but at the end of the day it takes a mix of qualitative and quantitative analysis to be a long-term profitable player at dfs if only a simple algorithm by itself could predict exactly what was going to happen then um, there would be no reason for us to even have this podcast so i like to do my own analysis uh, and another important thing i do is, uh, is take is write down the notes of all the things write down all the predictions write down my initial thoughts so that even after i've looked at all of these this data i can go back and compare it to my initial gut feelings whatever area of life anything it doesn't have to be dfs but whatever any area of life where you're, you're you find yourself making predictions it's a good idea to write them down just to just to go back later and, and really compare them because what happens is as time passes we can kind of uh we can change our in our heads of what actually happened and what we actually thought and it becomes less clear so writing down everything think is a big thing i know not everyone's going to have time to do that but just trying to go through my process and you guys can take um, what you want from that and, and decide how to implement it on your own but after i looked at the dollar per point vows to see if there's anyone i missed now i have a a list of guys at each position 
And now what I'm doing is now I'm starting to select guys for, for each roster slot. So that's another thing I, I might do a, a little bit different from some, some other people. Um, I, I did a lot of research on winning GPP lineups, and I found that there's certain things, there's certain roster makeups that continuously uh, show up. And, for example, uh, the, the, the top running back on DraftKings will, def- will usually be a guy uh, priced uh, 45 or higher. There's usually not two running backs in a lineup priced over 5K. There's usually two uh, higher-end, more expensive wide receivers in, in lineups and things like that. So I start to break it down by roster slot. I say, okay, these are the guys I like in this running back one tier. And I'll only use them as running back ones. I won't, for example, use like a David Johnson and a Devontae Freeman. Or mm-hmm. he might, he's probably not even a good example because he, he might be splitting snaps with Tevin Coleman. But you understand what I'm saying. Um, I, I, there's certain guys I would only use in certain roster slots. So then I start to break things down buy roster slot, divide my, all my players up. So there's certain wide receivers. For example, I wouldn't play like three three wide receivers that cost like under 4K. It just, it's mm-hmm. just not optimal. So I'll break down guys by that, and then I'll start looking at uh, their floor projection, their ceiling projection, what their ownership will be, their big game upside. And another re- thing that I think is really important to look at is other salaries at the position. So, for example, in – Somebody uh, asked me last week why um, I didn't write up uh, Brock Osweiler as a cash game play. And my response was that because I think I had um, Dak Prescott and maybe uh, I think Derek Carr and maybe another higher end option. might have been Russell Wilson. Or, I'm not sure. But my thing was that because Dak Prescott was available uh, at, at minimum price – it really didn't make sense to go that median route with Osweiler. I, I felt like you either go with the minimum price with Dak, and you if he has a bad game, you just eat it because your rest of your lineup should be pretty stacked, or you pay up for a premium option at the higher end um, that, that has a much higher floor. So I'll, I'll do things like that. For example, this week, I think Antonio Gates will be the chalk play, but I also think there are a bunch of tight ends at or near minimum price that offer a, st- uh, a lot of discount from Gates. So in a situation like that, I'll be looking heavily at those tight ends where in a certain other week I might be wanting to pay up more at tight end. So that also influences my player pool. If there are a lot of cheap options, then I generally won't include as many um, more expensive options in my player pool and vice versa. So it also depends on salaries. Um, And then from there, uh, I pretty much have my player pool. And then it just comes down to in GP, in, in cash, I usually play one lineup, two at most if there's guys that I think are really equal or a lineup I think is really equal or there's a couple of swaps I can make. But in general, I'm playing one cash game lineup and just diversifying and, and creating somewhat of a floor for myself by playing in head-to-heads versus different opponents. But in tournaments, what I'm doing with my player pool is I am now creating lineups with each of my options in each roster slot. And I'm creating, I'm also creating lineups without certain players. So, for example, um, we can use my DraftKings Week 1 GPP breakdown, which was available to 4 for 4 subscribers. So, uh, at running back, at running back uh, my main running back in the 1-2 flex was uh, DeMarco Murray, and my running back, main running back 2 was Spencer Ware. So, uh, I'd, make, I'd make a bunch of uh, Ware-Murray uh, backfields and I'd put in all my favorite stacks, my Breeze and Cooks or, you know, my uh, my Wilson Baldwin or whatnot, and I'll make lineups like that. And then I'll also make lineups where I do Murray with an, with without wear 
and the same lineup with where without Murray and things like that. And depending on how many lineups you multi-enter into a tournament is how obviously how much you're going to do this. But in general, once I have my player pool, I just like to give myself outs if like one or a certain combination of guys or a pair of guys or a guy underperforms. And I'll do that also depending on how, how likely I think a guy is to underperform. And that's pretty much um, how I create my player pool and then how I – put it into action so i know that was a lot um but tj let me know if you have any comments and you can also um, jump directly into your process as well yeah we have a lot of uh similarities in our process which probably doesn't come as much of a surprise to a lot of our listeners but i mean kind of the reason we ended up putting together these guidelines this year is because we talked about this leading up to the season that my process started from years of taking notes of all these books and articles I had written and turned them into uh, this basically this one-page kind of checklist of what I want at each position in general. Uh, obviously, there's always going to be variations in those general guidelines, but it's a great starting point. Uh, you talked about starting out your week with notes. The first thing I do every week, and I don't physically write these down. I uh, just kind of make a, a mental checklist. I'll, I might jot it down on on like a virtual post-it on my desktop. But Sunday or Monday night, I'll go to a site like Pinnacle or thespread.com and just look at what Vegas lines come out. A lot of times where we're going to see line movement is right when the line comes out and then Saturday or even early Sunday when a lot of sharp money is going on it. So um Throughout the week, there's just a lot of casual betters. But I want to look Sunday night, see kind of what are my first impressions. Um, who are some teams that are maybe in a high-scoring game that I didn't suspect? Uh, games that are low-scoring, uh, why do I think they're low-scoring? If they are high-scoring, is it uh, because there's a passing offense that we already like in it? We talk about New Orleans and New York this week. Uh, so just kind of looking at that and then looking at reverse line movement really early in the week. So did a line come out on Sunday night and there's already reverse line movement by Monday morning? That usually indicates that Vegas put out a bad line and the sharp money jumped on it. So just kind of making some mental notes of that before I even look at a stat, before I look at uh, any point per projection model, just who are some guys that I mentally like and uh, it, it really just kind of lets me get into my research and know who I need to revisit or who my uh, just natural thinking is favoring that maybe I shouldn't be favoring. Uh, after that, you talked about building your cash game lineups. Uh, just in general, I take a really high variance approach to DFS, especially on the weekly level. So I get a lot of questions on Twitter um, and email just about how do I build my player pool, how many players do I have, and the reason I'm always really hesitant to answer that is because my player pool on a week-to-week basis is really, really small. So what that does is it creates... uh, there can be some really uncomfortable three or four week stretches where you just see your your bankroll on the steady decline because if you don't hit, uh, it, it gets ugly. But when you have those good weeks, it just makes up for that and then some easily. So I really trust my process and know that um, I... I'm not necessarily putting out lineups just for the sake of diversification uh, because I think what I put together can have an advantage over the field in the long run. So um, I don't want to give up equity just for the sake of diversifying. On the note of diversifying, one thing that I 
do use for natural diversification is playing different slates. So sometimes I'll be kind of torn on a player. They might have a, a uh, maybe there's a couple running backs I like, but there is a pretty big price discrepancy discrepancy say maybe seven or eight hundred dollars um and by switching those guys out it really affects my overall lineup that seven eight hundred dollar price gap is going to change all these players that i've already kind of built up to uh, to build a what i think is an optimal lineup so what i'll do a lot of times is this works great if one of your guys you that you really like is on a monday night game uh, I'll just play different slates. I'll put half of my money in a Sunday-only slate and half of my money in the Sunday-to-Monday slate. I don't know if you could do that on DraftKings anymore because they really changed their main slate, but you could still do it on on FanDuel. Then you get not only natural diversification of your lineups, but you get a natural diversification of opponents. So even if you have really similar lineups, you might face a lot of really different lineups. So you can uh, diversify that way without losing equity in terms of of putting together an optimal lineup. Speaking of building optimal lineups, you touched on this. I don't look at an optimizer or a uh, point per dollar metric until I've done every single bit of research that I have, till I've gone through my guidelines, till I've gone through the Vegas lines, till I've made a player pool of people that I, I really like. And then what that optimizer can do is it could show me an actual lineup of players that fit it together really nicely, and then I can see players that a um, a virtual intelligence agrees with me on, and then something that maybe I overlooked because I have a lot of human error in my process. So that lets me go back, review my process, and then I could uh, kind of figure out why I'm missing a guy or uh, if I'm still just going to keep him out of my player pool uh, regardless. One thing that I like to do for GPPs, and again, uh, this is going to be uh, a little different depending on, on your bankroll and how many lineups you're playing, uh, but you, the first thing you should do is before you try to figure out how many stacks you want or how how big your player pool is going to be for GPPs, how much money are you playing? If you only have ten dollars to play and you're going to play ten dollar, uh, ten one dollar GPPs, you're going to have a very different approach than somebody that's playing one hundred and fifty lineups at the twenty five dollar buy in level. Um, so what I like to do is I. Take two, three stacks that I, I really, really like for my GPPs. Um, and then if that matches up with the process, I'm going to figure out if I want to be over or underweight on who I think are the best plays. So, for example, um, one of my favorite plays last week was Jameis Winston. So I ended up rolling out about 40% uh, of my GPPs with Jameis Winston in it because I wanted to be really overweight on, on Jameis Winston. And on the flip side... I liked Drew Brees a lot, but um, I didn't know if I wanted to be overweight on him because I thought he might be really high owned and it might push down some of the ownership percentage of other quarterbacks I really liked. So to diversify myself from the field, I still had exposure to Drew Brees, but I only had 10% exposure to him. Now that didn't work out well on the Brees side, but it worked out really well on the Jameis Winston side. So just trying to figure out how I want to weight my players in GPPs. And then finally, when it comes to actually building my lineups, and I do this in both cash and GPP, I go through and look for the very, what I think are the most 
obvious values, players that I know I'm going to have in my lineup. Some weeks, there's nobody that just stands out as a ridiculously obvious play. Some weeks, there's quite a few of them. We had uh, Marvin Jones, Spencer Ware, and Dak Prescott. That's going to affect your exposure to the number of players if there's three or four obvious values especially for cash game you're just going to have a smaller player pool to choose from so then i could get an idea of the price range that i want in my players and i could start narrowing it down from there um, so that's just kind of quickly how i'm thinking about narrowing down my player pool how i'm going from uh point a on sunday night to the end point on sunday morning when i'm finally going back to those vegas lines again looking for that reverse line movement looking for anything that looks really fishy in the betting lines and then just doing some final adjustments from there really really great breakdown tj um i will add a couple things i know we're already running long so i'll try to make it quick um one thing i think again i really do recommend if you play gpps you know like tj said if you only have ten dollars i think ten one dollar gpps is still going to be your best bet just because you want to get some you want to give yourself as many chances as possible to um grow your bankroll a little bit so that you can start moving up a level in terms of your entry fees in gpps rather than just blowing on one ten dollar entry right off the bat and i think when i'm when i'm building my player pool for gpps i think one thing i try to always do is i mentioned i build it by roster slot so um one thing i like to do is for for the single positions quarterback tight end uh, and defense um again i look at the salary structure and uh, i i always like to have uh, at least my, i want to have my main option and then at least one alternate for each position and sometimes those that alternate will be in the same salary range um sometimes it'll be in a completely different salary range but it, essentially i want two options so that as i'm building lineups i'm flexible enough to where i, I don't just keep you know for example let's say jeremy curry this week he's three thousand dollars he's minimum price it's so easy to just uh use that crutch and just put Jeremy Curley in every single lineup because he's so cheap and he allows you to fit every other guys you want. But what mm-hmm. I like to do is I always want to have that alternate, even if he's 15 K more expensive, even if it's a guy, I forget Will Fuller's exact price, but even if it's a guy like Will Fuller, then I'll have a guy 15 K more expensive there. And then I'll also have maybe a running back that's 15 K less than, than, than my, my, my main running back or, or, or wide receiver that's 15, you know, something to balance it out. So I always want to have options so that I can mix and match lineups to where I'm not too overweight on one guy. Um, a guy like I, I, I almost made this mistake last week with Jared Cook, where it, it, I was making so many lineups and it was just so so good to to stick him mm-hmm. in there at 2,900 on DraftKings. But I was like, you know, like wait a minute, like it's it's worth it to diversify to pay the extra 300, for example, for a guy like Dwayne Allen um, at 32k, and that really you know, made me a lot of extra profit than if I would have simply gone with cooks in all the lineups um cook excuse me that in all the lineups i went with allen with um some other things tj mentioned um looking at optimizers and such i think another underrated thing about looking at the optimizers is just getting a feel for what what other people um especially more casual players might be doing because a lot of times people are going straight off the, the optimizers or the values and not not doing any other type of human research so i think that's why for four for four dfs subscribers we actually publish in addition to the gpp i mean excuse me the cash game breakdowns and that me and TJ uh, each write every week where we essentially are, you know, doing that human analysis, uh, picking out the players that we like the most. We also do an optimal lineup walkthrough, uh, Kevin Zate Lukel, where we 
post our optimal lineups uh, for the, for the floor and for the for the median projections, and and then Kevin kind of walks through. Okay, these are the guys that I would keep locked in from this optimal lineups, and then these mm-hmm. are the guys that I might think about switching out or at least having some alternates. And I think that kind of analysis is really important. So for for the guy for for those of you that already subscribed to four for four is DFS sub, um, I think it is important, even if even if you're you're mainly only in the lineup uh, optimizer and generator, just to glance at those articles, just to see, you know, what guys, people like me or TJ or Kevin are, are, are taking out, what guys are keeping in, because that'll also kind of give you some indications to what everyone else uh, will be doing. And another thing I wanted to mention was that my generally my cash game and my GPP player pool will be different. And the reason for that is with cash games, I'm usually rolling out one lineup. I want it to be essentially the most optimal lineup, uh, if not by the numbers, by what I think is the most optimal lineup. And then in GPPs, they're kind of like a hedge. So in GPPs, I can then roll out all of the guys that I'm not rolling out in cash. And if I have a really good week in cash, maybe I'll have a bad week in GPPs or vice versa. Um, but because I'm playing a, a larger percentage of my bankroll in cash, but GPPs are more top heavy, it's going to balance out in the long run. Um, and also there, so in general, my GPP player pool is for the most part, completely different from my cash game player pool. I do make certain exceptions with the guys who I think are just the top plays of the week. So, for example, last week, uh, Spencer Ware was the guy I wrote up in my GPP uh, breakdown article where I said, you know, I know he's going to be chalk. I don't know. I don't don't think I knew what the exact ownership was. I knew it was going to be over 20. I knew it was going to be chalk. But I said, you know, there's first. First of all, the re- research has shown that one chalk play is okay at running back and wide receiver on both Fanduel and DraftKings. But yeah, there's o- there's going to be chalk plays in a given week where they're just too good of a value for you to pass up. Um, I thought Ware was a guy like that last week, especially when guys are very cheap um, and at running back, and they're going to get twenty plus touches in a game or mm-hmm. at least approach it. Um, it's usually a good idea to to think twice about a, a full on fade. You could go underweight, as TJ mentioned. So if you think Ware is going to go be 30% owned, you can own him 15% or something like that, but there's always going to be players like that, but in general, my cash, my, my GPP player pool is a lot of those kind of second tier guys or those guys that are owned, that are, they're not going to be the most popular plays, but that are still um, in good spots and good values, they're just not the most popular players, because the most popular plays of the day, the ownership is usually uh, a little top heavy on those three guys, so for example, the running back one and running back two in terms of ownership on the day will probably be higher than, say, the running backs three through seven, which would be a little more flat so something else I should keep in mind and a final note I wanted to make was that uh, I didn't mention before I also try to rewatch the games as early as I can I know that's something mm-hmm. a lot of people aren't going to do they simply just don't have time but um, because this is my full-time job I get the <laughs> <laughs> I get the pleasure of being able to go on NFL game pass and rewatching uh, the games and that's another thing I like to do before I really dig too deep into data to just get my actual impressions from each game from actually seeing it uh, TJ any final words on player pool selection yeah just that final note on watching those games you don't even have to be a film grander we've talked about this a bunch on on this podcast like you don't have to be able to analyze um players but the classic example i go back to is last year at the end of the year uh spencer ware and sharkandrick west were on paper splitting touches but if you were actually watching the games you saw that down the stretch Ware was uh really getting those important touches when the game was starting uh when they were winning the game and when they were near the goal line so even just takeaways like that 
that are really important that you can't get just by looking at the numbers on paper. So uh, really good point rewatching those games as part of the process. And that about does it for DFS MVP presented by 4 for 4 Football. TJ Hernandez, Chris Raybon. Just want to remind you guys about 4 for 4's DFS subscription. Once again, we're letting a getting a lot of good feedback on Twitter from week one. A couple people won GPPs. A couple subscribers won GPPs. Another guy finished fourth in a contest of almost 300,000. We had uh, five of the nine players in the winning Milieu Maker lineup recommended in the DraftKings GPP write-up. In week one, uh, we just rolled out upgrades to the stack value reports and added a dozen new stacking combos, including quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and just a whole lot more. And if you guys are thinking about subscribing, there is a discount code in the pinned tweet on my Twitter profile. My Twitter profile is at Chris Raybon, at C-H-R-I-S. R-A-Y-B-O-N. And of course, you can find Mr. TJ Hernandez at TJ Hernandez at T-J-H-E-R-N-A-N-D-E-Z. And also be sure to check out rostercoach.com. Let's get out of here, TJ. Miss Fat Shmoney. Let's get this shmoney. Same type game, the type of girl giving out the fake cell phone the name. Big fame, big she fame. like cats a big thing. Jewel ship, money clip, phone flip the six range. Has seen her on the half spotted her more than once. Ass so fat that you can see her from the front. She spot me like paparazzi. Shot me a glance in that cat woman stance with the fat booty pants. Hot damn, what's your name, love? Where you came from? Neck and wrist laced up, very little makeup. The swims at the Reebok gym, tone your frame up a sugar and spice. The only thing that you made up. I tried to play a low key but couldn't keep it down. Accident, she was like, yo, I'm leaving now. An hour later, Sam's from Jamaica. She sipping Chris straight up, skanking while in the waist up. See. My fam throwing the jam for Reed is on the stand. Big things is in the plan. The brother Big Moon makes space for me to move in here. Yo, this my man most. Baby, let me introduce. I turn around. You was the same pretty bird who I had priorly observed. Trying to play me for the herd. Shocked as hell, she couldn't get it together. I just played along and pretended I never met her. How you feeling? No, I'm fine. My name is Moe. I'm Sharice. I heard so much good about you. It's nice to finally meet. He moved to the booth, preserve the crew, especially your honey love. Ended up sitting directly next to me. I'm tight polite, but now I'm looking at it skeptically.